And what was the last dream that you remember? I often don't remember my dreams, but last week I had a dream where I was in a hotel. I walked up this big winding staircase up to a, a buffet, is what it looked like, and there were all these metal containers that looked a bit like those old-fashioned kind of ice cream churns that you see in some fancy gelato shops. And when I opened one of the lids, uh, instead of ice cream or food, there were socks in it. And no matter which lid I opened, there were more socks of different colours. I don't remember much of the rest of the dream. I don't know what the meaning is. Uh, but to be honest, who wants to listen to me tell about my random dream? After all, listening to someone tell you about their dream is, is commonly accepted to be really quite boring. You have to be there for it to be interesting, it seems. But Daniel 2 is a story all about a dream, the dream of a king. And this isn't just some run-of-the-mill dream, uh, the subconscious processing of a monarch. This is a dream that has eternal and international ramifications. The dream of a king that tells us about the ultimate king, the God of the heavens and the earth. We've already met King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter one of Daniel last week, uh, which Mark took us through. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, the superpower of its time in the ancient Near East, which is in modern-day Iraq. Uh, the Babylonians had defeated the nation of Israel and then de deported most of the population to Babylon around 586 BC. Daniel, Ananiah, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who we better know as Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, are four young men of the Israelite ruling class who were conscripted into the king's service in chapter one. And as Mark said last week, the book of Daniel is an interesting book. Although on the surface it has a similar style to historical narratives like one or two kings in the Bible, the author of Daniel actually uses and subverts several styles of literature. I believe the evidence suggests that the stories in Daniel are based on reality and that Daniel was a real person in Israel's history. But these stories don't read the same way as historical narrative. They have a different style. The exploits of Daniel and his friends seem almost unbelievable sometimes, like a sitcom or an action comedy. The characters are quite two-dimensional compared to other people in the Bible. And we might say that Daniel and his friends have had a glow up. Their characters are enhanced with any negative traits ironed out. And this is all for a particular purpose. In telling stories that are compelling and extreme with characters who are wholly evil or ridiculous or righteous, the author has a greater purpose than just entertaining us. The book of Daniel uses irony, uh, exaggeration, caricature and satire to undermine and challenge those in power. Uh, that is the powers of Babylon, Persia and Greece and to encourage faithful Jews who were suffering to stand firm and trust God. And so as we read about Daniel and his friends, young men from the defeated and humbled nation of Israel, 
exiled in a foreign land and subject to the whims of an all-powerful king. We're also reading a subversive tale that subtly afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. And the subversive humour begins in the very first line of the story. The king has had a dream, a weighty and disturbing dream. Carolyn, could you flick? Uh, verse 1 says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful ruler in the world, scared and sleepless, cowering under his bed covers because of a dream. Uh, in the ancient world, it was commonly accepted that dreams could contain messages from the gods. And apparently, Nebuchadnezzar recognised that this was one of those dreams. And so the king gathers all the knowledge and wisdom he's got access to, which is quite a lot, as we find out in verse 2. The king summoned the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. These people were specialists, experts in dream interpretation, the best of the best. Uh, but notice that the way I read it is a little different to the way the NIV translation puts it. I've given a slightly more literal translation uh, of the Hebrew. The king summoned the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the astrologers. Nebuchadnezzar is so powerful he can click his fingers and the wisest, most educated and probably wealthiest people in the empire, the Elon Musks of Babylon come scurrying, scurrying to his side. And perhaps you've picked up already in the exaggeration and repetition, the narrator is mocking the king. Because as we soon find out, in the face of a mere dream, the experts of Babylon are useless. In answer to the king's request to tell him what he dreamt, these wise men say, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll interpret it. Of course we can interpret your dream, they say. We've got all the knowledge and tradition of Babylon behind us. Just tell us what it is, O mighty king. Uh, it's not going to be as easy as that, though, is it? Uh, perhaps the power has gone to Nebuchadnezzar's head, or maybe he's become a little sceptical of their claims of divine insight. Uh, the king demands that the experts tell him what the dream is and then interpret it. Otherwise, he'll have them chopped into tiny pieces and their houses turned into smoking piles of rubble. Well, a bit taken aback, the wise men try again. Well, let the king tell his servants the dream and then we'll interpret it, of course. Well, the kind of ridiculous back and forth continues as the king suddenly replies they need to tell him the dream and the interpretation. There's no way out. So finally, with some level of panic, the experts replied, but there's no one on earth who can do what you're asking. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Well, the truth is out. All the resources and power of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar is helpless. What he's asking is impossible. The wise men might be knowledgeable by earthly standards, but they can't know what only the gods know. 
This is way above their pay grade. And so because the wise men can't tell the king the content of his dream, the king becomes enraged and decrees that all the wise men of Babylon are to be executed. Uh, A slight overreaction, perhaps. And so the scene closes with the bewildered helplessness of the wise men and the homicidal tyranny of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a bit like a black comedy. And us as the audience both laughs and is horrified at the dark humour. Well, the story's focus quickly moves to Daniel, who in contrast to the wise men and the king, is tactful and confident. He diplomatically handles the king and does what none of of the wise men could do. He gets a stay of execution so he can have time to interpret the dream. And he then goes to his friends and asks them to pray to the God of heaven, to the only one who can reveal the mystery of the king's dream. And so that very night, as we read, God gives Daniel a vision that reveals the dream's content and meaning. You see, Daniel isn't just doing the same thing as the wise men, but better. He's not relying on human wisdom. Rather, Daniel relies on the wisdom and power of God to reveal the secrets of politics and history. He praises God as the one who changes times and seasons, who deposes kings and raises up others. Only God can reveal the secrets of history because he's the eternal almighty one who controls history. The wise men of Babylon couldn't figure these things out by using earthly techniques. They could only be known by supernatural revelation. So we now know Daniel has been given a vision from God to tell him the king's dream. But still, we don't know what it is. The suspense builds as Daniel is ushered into the king's presence and begins to speak And by the time we got to the end of our Bible reading earlier, we're on tenterhooks. Get on with it, Daniel. What's the king's dream? What mystery has God revealed? Well, let me read the rest of the chapter from verse 31. Daniel says, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all humankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. 
just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Well, Daniel tells the king that in his dream, the statue represents his empire, with Nebuchadnezzar himself as the golden head. Uh, Although earlier in the Old Testament, we mainly hear about the history of Israel, here we see a broader view of world history. We're reminded that God who gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of all kings and nations, not just of Israel. And no matter how much political and military strength Nebuchadnezzar has, his power has been given to him by the God of heaven. Well, after the head of gold, uh, the following kingdoms, the silver, the bronze, iron and clay in the statue, uh, they're not named. And we don't get specific details about how they rise and fall. Significantly though, the fourth kingdom of mixed iron and clay is described as a kingdom capable of great violence and destructiveness, but also with a fragility that's often present in powerful regimes. The original audience, whether they were in the sixth century or the second century BC, and every audience in history afterwards could experience, uh, could, could identify with the experience of living under such terrifying power, whether it was Babylon, Persia, Greece, or Rome. In more recent history, we might equate the Fourth Kingdom uh, with the British Empire, Nazi Germany, America, China, Russia. Throughout history, different kingdoms have risen up with enormous power and destructive influence often to the detriment of God's faithful people. History continues on, and it can sometimes look like God is powerless, that he'll never act. But then in the dream, God does act. A rock is cut out, not by human hands, and smashes into the statue, and in one fatal blow, the whole thing turns to dust. And in the place of the statue, the rock stands instead and grows into this colossal mountain that fills the earth. Daniel tells the king that this rock represents God's kingdom. Despite appearances, one day God's kingdom will come and it will utterly destroy all earthly kingdoms. Uh, And notice that God's kingdom isn't just like another add-on to the statue, a fifth kingdom, just like the previous four. God's kingdom is something entirely different, a kingdom of supernatural origin that fills the earth. 
This isn't the end of history, but it is the end of all other rulers. Although Nebuchadnezzar has been given power and authority for a little while, God's rule is eternal. You might remember in verse 4, the wise men had greeted Nebuchadnezzar with the words, may the king live forever. But the irony is that Nebuchadnezzar's end is inevitable. Only God lives forever, and so only his kingdom is eternal. We might sometimes think of ourselves as victims of history, stuck in a world that's careering out of control towards destruction. But the dream of the king tells us that someone is directing history. Whether or not we trust God or even believe he exists, he is in control of our lives. He sees, he knows, and he has a purpose for history. For those faithful Jews who trusted in the God of heaven, the message of this story would have given them immense comfort. Another nation was in power for now. Human kingdoms are God's will for now, but not forever. Their God and our God is still the Lord of the heavens and the earth. Only God has the knowledge to reveal the secrets of history, and only God is powerful to raise up kings and end kingdoms. Well, after Daniel finishes his explanation of the dream, we read that the king is amazed and falls down before Daniel and praises his God. And then he appoints Daniel as ruler over Babylon and puts him in charge of all the wise men. And Daniel makes his three friends administrators over the province of Babylon. A happy ending. In this subversive story, Daniel, the captive in a foreign court, ends up on top, acting with dignity, humility, and assurance in God, and becomes the most powerful man in Babylon, second only to the king. The original audience would have been comforted as they saw that even in exile in a foreign country, God's faithful people can have an impact on governments and nations. In contrast to Daniel, the Babylonian wise men are shown to be idiots, and the king is revealed as irrational, tyrannical, and probably not very trustworthy as he switches his allegiance from the Babylonian gods to the God of Israel. It puts us on guard that he could just as easily switch back and stay tuned for chapter 3. The dream and its interpretation are also subversive, Daniel openly tells King Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom will end, and he proclaims that God's everlasting kingdom will be infinitely bigger and better than Babylon. God's faithful people who are suffering are encouraged to keep trusting in the Lord, while those in power are made fun of and exposed. The afflicted are comforted, and the comfortable are afflicted. And if we jump forward a few thousand years from Daniel's time, that's also what Jesus came to do, to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, to proclaim the coming of God's kingdom. Just like in Daniel, God's kingdom didn't look very promising from a worldly point of view. Jesus taught about an upside-down kingdom where the first would be last and the last first. More often than not, Jesus attacked or openly mocked those in power, those who were self-righteous. 
while spending most of his time with the weak and outcast. And Jesus began his reign as king by dying on a cross. But that's not the end of the story, is it? And Jesus' parables that we read in Matthew about the mustard seed and the yeast tell a similar story to the dream of the king. The rock destroys the impressive statue and grows to fill the earth. The tiny mustard seed grows to become a large tree offering shelter for wildlife. The few grams of yeast cause a massive chemical change in 30 kilograms of flour. God's kingdom grows in secret and surprising ways, like a mustard seed, like yeast in dough. God's kingdom is growing and spreading, using what is weak and defeated to bring about his victory, using us who are weak and defeated to bring about our Lord's victory. Be assured, church, that the kingdom of Jesus is here and it is growing, even when we can't obviously see it. In the ministries at Gap and Scar Tree, God's kingdom is growing. In our small group Bible studies, God's kingdom is growing. At church and kids' church each week, as we meet together and sing and pray, God's kingdom is growing. In our homes and workplaces, as we influence the world for Jesus, God's kingdom is growing. Gradual, secret sometimes, but unstoppable. The rock has begun to grow into a mountain that will fill the whole earth. And like God's people throughout history, we're looking forward to the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, just as the waters fill up the sea. Well, in our next hymn, we're going to sing of the Lamb upon the throne, uh, this is quite an upside-down, subversive picture of our Lord Jesus, the almighty king who was slain and rose again to bring in God's kingdom. Well, let's stand and sing in praise to him now. Crown him with many crowns.